0: you thinking maybe we could do a podcast tonight damn it you're so needy whatever
1: the the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve
0: one damn minute admiral got nothing but time just waiting on you so yeah let's uh let's
1: pretend we know what we're doing
0: all right, here we go. Today is November 17th, 2014, and this is episode 93, just seven away from that big 100 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you tonight, sir? I'm awesome. How are you? I am excellent, which is
1: rare for me to say on a Monday. But I had a really good weekend, so that helped.
0: Good deal. Good deal. So, as uh, as usual, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast still do not represent those of our employers past, present, or future. And they probably never will.
1: Well, probably true. Occasionally, there may be a collision, kind of like an MD5 hash collision between our opinion and an employer's collision. But that's completely coincidental.
0: Yes, and totally unplanned. Mm Mm-hmm. So, we have for you this evening a lovely slate of stories. And the first of which comes to you from Security Week and the title is Postal Service Suspends Telecommuting VPN Access as Breach Investigation Continues. And so um so apparently China has uh, has hacked the postal service and the Personal information of some eight hundred thousand USPS workers uh, has been stolen, uh, uh, apparently. And what was interesting in this, I guess, two things. Num- <sniffs> number one is that there have been a, a spate of government breaches recently. You know, there was NASA. There's the USPS. There, you know, there's there, uh, a- a- NOAA and what what one thing that's interesting and this has actually gotten some uh some press on its own is that apparently the government is detecting a lot of these on their own now rather than you know somebody doing a common point of uh <laughs> of, of purchase kind of analysis and finding out that uh, you know it was USPS employees uh that that were subjects of identity theft or or what have you. Uh so so that's a that's an interesting development and there's not a lot of context behind you know what what um is is led to that. But the other interesting thing here is that they took the what I would call relatively drastic action of turning off their VPN service. And um it, it's it's not entirely clear whether or not that actually had anything to do with the breach. But apparently upon inspection or in, in their investigation, they found that uh, there was apparently something, some kind of vulnerability in their VPN service they felt needed to be re- uh, rectified before they they started letting people back in. So kind of an interesting situation. And I know that they've taken a little bit of of heat for, for that decision because it is kind of a, you know, kind of a, a on the surface, knee jerk. So what do you think? Well, is it a knee jerk? We don't know. I was thinking
1: that this goes back to something we've talked about all the time, which is that different reactions to different situations are highly localized situations, right? So ultimately turning off your VPN and forcing your telecommuters to not telecommute for a lot of businesses that may be unthinkable. That may just be not an option. The cost to business to do that may be higher than the risk. And so the the cost to mitigate is higher than the risk being exploited. And a lot of companies don't do that. It's kind of like, you know, I'm not going to just unplug from the internet. But in this case, USPS, because they are the USPS, made the call of, hey, we can turn off telecommuting and that's not going to impact our core function of our organization and likely is not going to impact our morale too badly that people are going to quit in droves and all that kind of jazz. So they decided that within their organization, it was acceptable culturally and socially to disable this core functionality that a lot of us take for granted in an organization. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to think about in that this is why there is no one answer to these situations. And we talk a lot about what if you can't patch right away? What if you can't do this? What if you don't know? Uh, Sometimes you're not in a situation where you can just turn off services, but it's something to consider. And in this case, they made the call, hey, just turn that crap off and we'll fix it. So I think it, it more goes to the concept of, each individual organization has to decide what their risk tolerance and and service availability balance needs to be when these things happen. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, when I've had half a beer after not drinking for a couple of weeks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're I think you're on an important point, and they actually lay uh, it laid out in the article that you know they the USPS that is um, all their employees apparently have all the the employees who would otherwise telecommute also have an office and uh they don't apparently have any full-time telecommuters so it's more a situation where it's kind of a casual arrangement where they might telecommute once a day so it it was more a situation where everybody just had to go into the office rather than you know shutting down some part of your of your organization so it seemed like I, I, from that perspective it wasn't uh, a, a dramatic impact to their business. No, but
1: you know, I don't know the culture at the USPS, obviously. But in most organizations, a lot of people do work from home after hours, weekends.
0: Yep, and that's a, that's an intangible that that um, yeah, you know. I think a lot of organizations benefit from and I'm sure that that caused some level of impact.
1: What I wonder too is because a lot of times on our mobile devices when we're pulling email and such, that's not via VPN. It's usually via some sort of direct connection. It's not addressed in this article, right? So, yeah, and my it's, gut. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say my gut is obviously something happened with their VPN.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I have the same. I have the same suspicion. You know that one of their one of their employee VPN credentials got compromised and. You know, com- while I'm uh, while I'm off completely high- you know, speculating and hypothesizing, I wonder if one of their one of the changes they are rolling out is uh, disabling split tunnel VPNs. Could be. Maybe they never patched for open SSL. Or or that. Yep. Fair
1: point. Of course, we're just purely speculating, which is not very good reporting.
0: But uh. <laughs> well, but again, the point of the podcast is you know, let's let's try to figure out where the uh, where the value is um the other the other uh i think thing of note in this is that the postal workers union oh boy yeah they they are very unhappy um and apparently the reason uh, the reason apparently is that the post office did some investigation over a, a, a period of months actually before they disclosed that this hack had happened and so the 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 employee union is kind of up in arms that uh, their the employees weren't notified promptly that their identities had been I guess allegedly stolen by by someone and and they didn't have the opportunity to go take uh, you know some kind of corrective action and that's a tough that's a tough balance right because on the one hand the organization needs to to do its investigation, and in all likelihood, um, they they do say that they were working with the FBI and um, the postal the, the office of the Inspector General of the Post Office and a couple of other law enforcement organizations, and you know may not have been a situation where they had a lot of choice. So,
1: yeah, it's also interesting too the way it reads is that they were the union was upset that union leadership was not brought into the inner circle during these things. Uh, I don't know what the relationship was like between management and the union over there. Um, It could be that leadership felt that the union was not trustworthy with that information, or maybe they simply didn't need to know. I don't know. It's, I'm not a big pro union guy, although I grew up in Detroit and, you know, my dad worked for the auto companies and, you know, union is everything up there, but, um, That's an interesting one, when and how you disclose, because when you're in the middle of an investigation, the less people who know about it, the better. And if you have a semi-adversary relationship with the union, that could be used against you in a way that may hurt your investigation. So without more details, I'm kind of coming down on the side of USPS leadership for not disclosing it to the union leadership. But again,
0: we know so little. Yeah there was another i guess another potential point of consternation which i think may end up being kind of a prudent thing and and that is that the uh, the post office took down a number of different systems apparently including their VPN on November 8th and 9th but they didn't they didn't disclose the breach until November 10th from what i can tell and so that that apparently is also a bit of a you know, a bit of a sticking point, I think, for the union and, and for some of the employees too, you know, IE, you, you, you know, you, you knew it to the, you knew about it to the point where you actually started taking action before you, you let us know about it. And when you have 800,000 employees, you know, you can't, uh, let's be honest, right? <laughs> Anything you disclose to 800,000 employees is basically going to be on every news channel. So yeah, uh, you have, it's, it's a, it's a tough situation. Yeah, how many of those private memos that get sent to large organizations get leaked? Um all of them? All of them. That's right. <laughs> so so you know, I I and I you know, I I have had experience at a larger organization and you when you do these sorts of things, you have to go into them with the explicit understanding that anything you do is is very likely going to go public. And that unfortunately drives the way you respond and you know, maybe smaller organizations are, are going to have a different view. I don't know, but 800,000 people is a lot of people. Indeed. So, um so moving on from there, our next story comes from browser stack and browser stack, uh, browser stack.com is a, uh, as far as I can tell a service that lets you uh, test your website or web applications or whatnot, with a bunch of different platforms and and versions of web browsers and mobile browsers and and in uh, all sorts of things, and apparently they're a, a relatively big company or larger organization. I had never heard of them before this. Um, they claim to have, I think, fifteen thousand customers. It's kind of a kind of a lot of customers, but anyhow, um, they apparently were hacked, and uh, this, by the way. Is notable to me because it is the only known case of a company being hacked using ShellShock. Oh Allegedly. But, well, they actually say. No, so, I know, but Well yeah, I mean we there may be others, right, that we don't we, we don't know about but Or or they could be lying. Or they could be lying. That's true. The st- but we will give them the benefit of the doubt. True. So their story here is uh, their environment runs in Amazon Web Services, and uh, they claim that they have uh, thousands of images running in their environment, and a uh, apparently they had a old image that was hanging around from early in their development cycle. And because it was old and unused, it, of course, was unpatched, but it was still live. And uh, someone, again, if you believe the story, which we have no reason to not believe it, uh, some attacker leveraged the Shellshock vulnerability to kind of start rooting around in in that old system. Once they got in there, they apparently found a number of uh, AWS API keys, and they used those keys and passphrases they found to go and create user accounts in the AWS console, and uh, they apparently took a backup copy, they made a backup copy of one of their other systems, and they mounted it, and they got a database password out of it, and then they started trying to pull down the database. Well, when they... When this attacker, which, by the way, it's, it's interesting that they refer to the attacker as a he in in this article. So, like, there.
1: are you are you are you worried about you know like being
0: anti-feminist? No, no, just seems very very definitive. I don't I don't know. Just uh, it just struck me as I was reading it. But but anyhow, uh, like as if they knew who it was. That that was what what struck me. Hmm. Uh, but anyhow. B- do, do you have some male guilt going on? No, not at all.
1: Huh. I have you, lots you, of other
0: guilt, but I, but not, not that. Are you a part of Gamergate? Part. Well, you know, I didn't want to talk about that. Uh-huh. But, you know, it, it is about truth. Have you landed, well, it's about ethics in in, uh, in journalism, right? Have you
1: recently landed a robot on a comet wearing a anti-feminist sexist shirt?
0: Um, no, okay, carry on, okay, so anyhow uh, when when this person uh, got started accessing the database that apparently locked the table and that set off some bells and whistles on the uh, the, the browser stack central console or you know whatever whatever uh, monitoring system they have. And that, that prompted someone to go look at it. They, I, they saw that there was an access from some IP address they didn't realize or didn't recognize, so they locked it out. And apparently, that happened so fast that uh, this bad guy only got 1% of their user database, uh, which I find a little fishy, by the way. Unless it was automated, I think that's a little, little fishy. Because that stuff gets copied real fast. So anyhow, yeah. I, I digress. Um, maybe he was on dial-up. M- well, maybe so. So uh, so apparently he or she or whoever uh, took those email addresses and started emailing their customers. And uh, it sounds to me, by the way, like whoever did this had some axe to grind, which kind of goes back to the point where maybe they actually know who did this. Um, because they now
1: I see where you were alluding to. yeah
0: yeah yeah. Uh, anyhow um, some interesting some other interesting things like they um, you know they say that the, the data that was compromised obviously contained email addresses because people got emailed uh, didn't have usable credit card numbers they only store the last four digits of the card uh, and, but here's where it goes a little weird for me I'm quoting, all user passwords are salted and hashed with a powerful bcrypt algorithm which creates an irreversible hash which cannot be cracked.
1: All hashes can be cracked over time.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a non-reversible function, but so is well, md5. Yeah, yeah, All right,
1: well, let's keep in mind again that they're probably, just to give them a little slack here, they're writing this for the average user yeah not infosec folks fair point right so anyway continue
0: fair point but but i think it's uh, to me it's a little uh disingenuous i suppose to, to you know to, to flatly call it uncrackable you know i guess you can't like you like i said you can't reverse engineer it obviously however it can be brute forced, especially if you use dictionaries you know the the big dictionaries that exist out there. So I don't think it's, it's necessarily, I just had a problem with it. Right. So
1: now did we confirm that they got a password database or a portion of the password database? Because it was a little unclear to me if, if they got that.
0: They, my read by the way, is that the, this person copied 1% of their user table.
1: Yeah, I sorry, I just completely missed it. Yeah, so whatever tables contain partial user info, including email IDs, hashed passwords, right. and last tested URL. Okay, somehow I missed that in my earlier reading of this. My apologies. Nope. But, uh,
0: yep. So, so the th- you know, obviously this was an interesting thing to me because I've been trying to find anybody that got impacted by Shellshock since it hit because I'm I'm interested in that kind of thing. But... You know, this also points out uh, a very pervasive problem that in my, many organizations have, and that is, you know, essentially inventory control. And, you know, the the cloud, just because it's the stinking cloud, doesn't actually change much. And in fact, I would say it potentially makes it worse because now you aren't sucking up your own electricity. You, you know, if you've got a physical server in your data center, you you know, sometimes you Kind of go, gotta deal with it, right? But um, these cloud images, you can just spin them up and forget about them forever. And if they happen to have the keys to your kingdom, you know that that can be a, a bad thing. So this this to me points out, you know one of the one of the key you know critical con- critical cybersecurity controls is inventory management for a reason. If you if you aren't aware and managing your inventory, you're gonna miss stuff like this. Yep, and and you know they also point out that uh, and, and I give them credit for for falling on their sword here. You know, y- they make the point that they should have patched their their fleet of all of their systems, whether they were tests or or obsolete or you know they didn't think they were operational or not. And I think that's a really important point, especially in this whole, in the, you know, in the age of virtualization, we've seen a number of organizations in the past. I think Bit9 among them and, you know, a number of others where you have this, you have an old backdated virtual machine that somebody turns on accidentally or intentionally or what have you, and it's not patched because it's been shut off and it's kind of been out, out of sight, out of mind. Now it's back online, and now you have a big problem so that's another an, I think another dimension to this inventory problem that that we have to uh, you know to, to factor in as we move more and more into the cloud.
1: yeah, one thing I did like is they they put in a section of what they did wrong and what they did to mitigate further and future incidents, which I think are handy things to look at. Um, the section they did what they did wrong, they basically said what you said. You know, we didn't patch everything. Moreover, servers not active, you should have been stopped, right? Shouldn't have had the AWS keys, and they should have done better communication. I would say there's a few more things they could have done that we can take as a lesson learned. Uh, They had no real auditing or alerting going on of privileged account management activities. There were a few things in there where certain activities were probably things that should have alerted on.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree. And by the way, uh, you know, um, AWS in particular gives you some interesting insight with their cr- cloud trails. You know, there's, there's, um, there's some possibilities that are, you, you even have that you don't necessarily have in other context. So. Yeah. And there are third
1: party products made specifically for managing and alerting on these sorts of things too. um, you know, that are worth looking at. So, but when somebody starts spinning up new users that have certain credentials, that's something that probably should have been immediately triggering an email.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yep. Uh, I agree with you 100% on the inventory management. Uh, the other thing is, so I don't know what the sort of pre-attack probes looked like. They don't talk about it here. And it was, you know, shell shock, so who knows, but... Shellshock's been around for a while now. Uh, I guess everybody just assumed they were patched and ignored it. But um, you know, it's a little tougher in a cloud environment. But if you were not in the cloud environment, what did those probes look like, and how are they not watching for those probes and alerting on someone trying to find
0: a shellshock vulnerable box? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of understand that, and you know, they they do bring up the point that they saw. Someone probing their main website, which wasn't vulnerable at the time, at least to shell shock. And I think that was kind of your point—that you know, hey, why didn't that set things off? My—the only thing I'd say is, you know, I have I have a web server too, right? And even well, now, aren't
1: you, Mister Fancy Pants? I know
0: that's fancy. I even even to this day, I see people probing. The- yeah, and you
1: can't react. You're right, right? You can't react to it's like reacting to drops on your firewall logs. Exactly. you're going to you're going to lose the fidelity. Um I don't know. I I'd, I'd like to know a little more about how the attack was conducted. Uh you know, how they got in, but it just seems to me there might have been an avenue for alerting that we lost there somehow.
0: Yeah. And and you know, one thing I do want to say is kudos to browserstack for being far more transparent about what happened. Than most any other company that gets breached. So, you know, I, I this isn't intended to be a knock on browser stack. Actually, quite the opposite. I think it's really important for us to get better as an industry to to understand how some some of these things fail. So, you know, obviously, hopefully, they will. You know, they'll learn from their lesson. But we can also, you know, hope the rest of us can learn too. Now, because they. They took this action to to be public about it. So, yeah, agreed. So, um, so yeah, that is uh, a good thing. Moving on to our next story, this one comes from Tech Week Europe, and the title here is, if I can find it, "Luxury Hotel Wi-Fi Hacked to Target Business Executives." This um, this actually made quite a lot of hay in the in the media, and. Kaspersky this is a, a report that came out of Kaspersky and they call it the Dark Hotel APT attack um and it, apparently it was a four year long investigation that they did which man that's for a for a private company that's a long that's a long investigation uh but the net of it is that uh and I think this is primarily in Asia Pacific region some yes, that's right. Travelers to the APAC region were particularly at risk. So, someone, some actor, had been targeting high-end hotels, uh, the Wi-Fi at high-end hotels, and you know, hijacking it so that when somebody connected to the Wi-Fi, it would it would offer you know malicious software updates. And so, I would assume things like. Um, maybe not Windows updates, but I could definitely imagine Adobe updates or things like that. And there are some canned tools that will do that. The name of the popular one escapes me right now, but um, you know, if you get on the local network, it's easier, it's kind of easy to, to push some of these alerts. And apparently that's what they did. So they have, um, they pushed some, I would call it more garden variety malware that did, then you know normal thing of looking for passwords and installing key loggers and and apparently also um, maintaining persistence right so uh this it wasn't just while they were at the hotel. the whole idea here is that hey, who stays at these expensive hotels you know people who probably are in positions of power uh, probably executives of of large companies. And, you know, they put their computer on the network and get uh, you know, get notified of an update, install the update. And now they are the subject of, uh, campaign. So to me, what's, what, you know, one of the things I, I, I thought of first when I saw this is, you know, this is, this kind of lends some credence to the whole burner laptop idea. Um, but even even so, I think that doesn't take it far enough because if you've got people who even taking a burner laptop to a you know one of these hotels, uh, the damage is probably already done because they're you know th- these people are able to steal their credentials if they're if in fact they're logging into their company account from the the burner laptop. So you have to be kind of cognizant of the different threats there. It's not necessarily just that they might carry something back that's really hard to get rid of, but what did they do while they were there? And I was trying to think about mitigation strategies. And, you know, one of the ones that seems interesting and and, uh, possible is uh, forcing a VPN connection that doesn't allow split tunnel essentially immediately upon connection. But you have some... You have, some ki- you have some concerns or, or difficulties with that because most of these Wi-Fis you know, require you to log into a, a little portal first. But I think a lot of the VPN clients will will still work with those. So, I don't know. Any, any thoughts from you? Yeah, this is a really
1: interesting one and, and a pretty nasty one, too. You know, it's, it goes back to what do you trust? And a lot of people just implicitly trust, you know, Wi-Fi network, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a tough one to fight, especially if you've got, for all intents and purposes, non technically sophisticated executives out there and sales folks out there uh, who are going to trust this stuff. I think probably really good endpoint management tools would help, uh, making sure that we're doing really good verification of updates uh, and, and ideally controlling those updates centrally out of IT somehow, some way. Uh, good whitelisting technology to limit what can and cannot run on these endpoints. And, you know, so it has to be known good before it, you know, can launch. Ultimately, yeah, it's, it's just a matter of being highly paranoid with these high-end executives. And this is something that I've, I've thought a lot about lately is we typically have this monolithic endpoint policy that, you know, everybody from the secretary in the mailroom up to uh, the VPs are treated the same way. With the same technology. And I'm not sure if that makes sense, right? We've got to pivot when we start talking about, uh, you know, executives and, and especially senior executives and how they're more likely to be attacked. So it's an interesting one. I, I, I need to ponder a bit more, uh, but it just goes back to, again, you can't trust the environment that there's, you have to consider it as hostile.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I think the reason, one of the reasons I I really wanted to bring the story up is that this is a you know this is an attack vector that we don't often think about. You know, we we of, we think about yeah, guarding our company's network and you know obviously guarding email and and preventing phishing attacks and and prevent you know guarding against social engineering attacks, but this is a this is a kind of a a different type of threat scenario that I think, uh, especially if you have people who travel abroad a lot, that you you ought, to, you ought to be thinking about. So, anyhow, moving on to our next story. This one comes from the Washington Post, and the title is, State Department Shuts Down Its Email System Amid Concerns About Hacking. So, uh, kind of similar to the USPS story. In that they shut down their email system uh, as opposed to the VPN, Um, there's a couple of, I guess one one particular funny thing that uh, you know, uh, they let's see uh, in a sign of how complete the shutdown was, duty officers were using Gmail accounts, (laughs) which I thought was a really funny quote from the uh, from the article, but. Uh, I know that this this company or not this company, but this uh, department also took a lot of hell for their decision to shut down their their email system as again a knee jerk reaction and again there there's really no detail on exactly what happened other than that they s- to say that they saw activity of concern in quotes on their unclassified email system and they uh they opted to shut it down. And again without you know without more details it's really hard to to second guess that I mean maybe that was a prudent decision maybe it wasn't I you know we we don't really know but I will say you know one one interesting thing that is emerging from from these trend lines right it's that number 1 the the government the US government seems like they're finding these things more proactively number 2 is they have, however dubious you might think they are, they have pretty concrete response plans. I mean, it they, they doesn't appear like there was a whole lot of debate. They shut off the email system because they thought that was the appropriate course of action. The USPS shut off their VPN system because they thought that was the appropriate course of action. And, you know, they've got a plan, apparently. So, yeah, good on them.
1: Well, at the end of the day, they don't have competitive pressures. They're the government. Fair enough. Right. So they're in a position to disrupt operations, if that's what makes the most sense. And this goes back to the same thing we were talking about with USPS. Where is that balance between operations, security, risk management, you know, getting stuff done versus making sure bad things don't happen? And this is a challenge that a lot of you know, commercial entities—they're a little bit more in a catch twenty-two. They just can't shut down like the government can. Can you imagine a modern business shutting down email?
0: Right. Well, that's true.
1: Well, so, I, I guess
0: the only—the only, the only uh, uh, to be contrarian on that for a second, it, you could envision, let's say, a, a military contractor. Where there you know this is a this is a an organization that that clearly has um classified information somewhere in their network, and you know i I do wonder if there is a different level of sensitivity on clamping down on things in environments where that you know that I, I would assume that the two uh, the, the two can't easily commingle or intermingle on the networks uh however. You know, clearly they, they i I would imagine that that's part of their their decision making process here
1: yeah yeah I'd say it's fair
0: so anyhow that that's uh that's it. hopefully we'll find out more you know it will be will be good especially since these are government agencies hopefully we will learn more about what happened uh and then our final story comes from Security Week. And the title here is "Security Operations: What Is Your Signal-to-Noise Ratio?" And we've talked endlessly on this podcast about the need to be better at detection uh, and and not solely rely on prevention. And I think this is this kind of hits at the heart of that—that that, you know we as an industry need to get better at detecting things. But there's a there's a problem in there and that is, you know, we have finite resources to work with in terms of monitoring. And so, you know, one of the points they bring up is you you've really got to whittle down the kind the number of events uh, that that your analysts are seeing to a to a reasonable actionable level. Otherwise, you know, if if a couple of important events do come in, you know they're they're um, they're additive to a small number rather than additive to a very large number, and they don't get lost in the noise. The problem I have with that is it sounds really simple. I mean, it's a, maybe not really simple, right? But this is this is hard stuff, and you know the whole article talks about the importance of doing this and really offers no no insight on how to. Uh, how to make the situation better, other than that the author has uh, experience doing this a number of times, which, you know, maybe you can hire him as a consultant.
1: Yeah, pimping his stuff. I, I agree with you, right? But it's one of those things that I think is an important concept of we have to get better as an industry at this right? And so that means you cannot just set up your SIM or your learning software and ignore it. You really have to dedicate somebody or multiple somebody's to tuning that, refining that, constantly improving that, finding other triggers, figure out a way that you can get really high fidelity on those alerts, I think is the key I took away from this message.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I I'm concerned though when when the layperson reads it, you know it, it. It's it kind of reads like, "Hey, wouldn't it be nice if your SOC analyst uh, only had a hundred events a day instead of a hundred thousand events a day? That way, when the uh, you know the alert that says you have some RAM scraping malware on your POS terminals comes in, they can go deal with it." And I think there is an implicit or an implied. Thing in there, or an implied statement in there, that says that you know you have gone through, you 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 effectively have the have a way to identify that that you you have a way to alert on that, and I think that is you know that that's that's a bit of a leap in a lot of cases. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's like you're missing. So buy this blinky box, and we do that for you.
0: Exactly. Yeah,
1: I, I agree. Yeah, he he lays out a great concept. But doesn't necessarily tell you how to get there. Right. Nor nor are we, by the way. Um, but I think the concept is sound. And I think it's something that, that we have talked about before. And I think there is a lot of value in logging and in analyzing those logs to find those key indicators. How you do that is very specific to your own organization. And the only thing I can take away from this is, it 's something to invest time and energy researching and building, but i don't have a pre canned way of doing that off the top of my head
0: yeah I, so this is something i 've been thinking a lot about, and I will give some some starter advice, I think, and a lot my my view is a lot of these sim deployments come at it from the perspective of okay let 's pull in all these logs and let 's try. Let's try to put them in buckets, and you know, let's try to uh, you know whittle them down and 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 segment them and cut through it to the point where we can you know, we can ignore most of it. And I think that's an interesting approach. But I think there is an opportunity to go at it the other way and say, what are the things that we should never see? Sure, like,
1: like having little honey accounts and honey data. That's
0: and- a good example. That is a yeah. great example. Another one is. Should you ever see your, you know, a, a server on a on an internal server network uh, pinging some other server on your network, which I don't is know. maybe well, I mean, that's an. I mean, again, <laughs> this is a that's a that's an environmental thing for you, right? You 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 have to figure that out for yourself. But right. you know, what are those? There are, and you know, I talk to Bob a lot about this, right? There are. A set of very common things that happen in in the course of lateral movement. I mean, it's not it's not this you know generally unlimited set of things, right? There, and a lot of the stuff is you know it, it is is there, right? But it is it is buried in the noise. And I guess my point is, if you think about it from the other way around, what what might you see? that would be an indicator of of someone in your system that should never happen in normal operation. And you might not ever see it in practice, but put a rule in there that looks for it. And if it trips, go deal with it. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. And,
1: and kind of define what we were talking about earlier, the concept of a honey account or honey data is like an account that should never actually be used or touched. But if suddenly you see someone try to log in on it, Jump that on it. That deserves attention. Absolutely. Yeah. Or data that is specifically left there that is non-relevant but looks juicy. And as soon as somebody touches it, go look at it. Right? So the concept is you're not trying to baseline normal behavior. You're leaving traps. Right. And, and those traps trigger alerts, um, which I think is an interesting concept. I, I don't know how well it would work in a really complex environment is the challenge. Right? because you'd have to really replicate them in a lot of different places and a lot of different parts of the organization. Um, but I, I, I agree with your fundamental point, which is it's really difficult to baseline normal and then spot anomalies off normal. It's right. really difficult. something we've been trying to do since the dawn of computing in many ways. That was what original IDSs were based upon. In many, many ways. You know, even though signatures were there, we were we were still trying to baseline normal. The problem with baselining normal is normal changes over time. Our networks are so busy right now that anomalies can easily hide. And what if you've already got a bad guy in your environment when you're baselining? Like I'm not saying that it's exactly. not valid. I'm not I'm not trying to poke holes, so therefore don't ever do it. But what I'm saying is that it has some limitations. I do think it's valid. I do think it's helpful. But what you're saying and what you're arguing for is something that is something that should never have a false positive.
0: Right. Or, or if it does, it's worth going and, and oh, always investigating.
1: Yeah. Right. Or a false negative, for that right. matter. Any touch of that is worth looking at. Yes. Right. Now, whether you it know, could be malicious or not, but
0: it's something that shouldn't
1: be happening – on your environment,
0: correct. Yeah, an an, ob- an objective thing that you can define, and you know, this is this is again one of those reasons that I think it's useful for infosec people and, and IT people in general to have some exposure to attack techniques, because you know, for instance, um, look look for PS Exec you know, most IPS or IDS engines will identify PS exec traffic. And hopefully your organization isn't doing PS exec. I mean, I know a lot of people use PS exec pretty liberally to manage their environment. I won't judge, right? But a lot of, you know, hopefully for most organizations, that stuff only originates from, you know, from a defined system. And, you know, if you see that traffic happening between other systems. That should never happen and is almost certainly an indication of someone trying to la- to move laterally. And, and, and so it goes, you know, look for people trying to scan, look for, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy inter- on, on internal networks is the missed opportunity of looking at failed login attempts. And, you know, th- those are, those are, you know, obviously, you could have a you could have a password that gets changed and you know. okay, but
1: to play devil's advocate, let's go back to it. Right? You've got ten thousand users. You've uh, got fifty thousand users. How many failed login attempts is normal over that user population? Right, and so you're getting alerts all the time about failed login alerts. And what do you do? You turn them off.
0: Well, I, so, I, I so guess there's I'm, some
1: threshold or something. That's right. But, right.
0: I'm, I guess I'm talking about. Um, I'm I'm talking about failed logins to the point where they lock out accounts
1: hey that happened to me the other day because <laughs> my phone was logging in so i had to update my password
0: no i know i know what you're saying in, in, yeah.
1: in our random unnamed directory services and my phone went crazy and started pounding on the pop three box with my password and it locked me up right okay not malicious and so, if that happens on a fairly regular basis, my organization has less than five thousand employees. Right. Um, well, I guess that's all public at this point, anyway. Uh, happens on a fairly regular basis. I am certain. disk guys are tuning that out as an indicator of compromise.
0: I, I agree, and maybe that is not where you would where you would put your thermometer. However, if you let's say have a you know a Linux you know, a a Linux system that's running your financials with SSH running and you see, uh, you know, five failed login attempts on that, nobody should be SSHing into that thing. I would agree.
1: So I think Part of what I'm hearing you say, and I, I, I not to put words in your mouth, but I agree with this, is part of this is having a really good in-depth understanding of your environment and your services and your critical infrastructure and the assets in that infrastructure and being very wise in how you instrument around it. Yes, absolutely. So, so I can't just go buy
0: a blinky box? No. Well, I mean, you. I, I don't want to say that you can't buy a blinky box, but it's still requires an immense amount of intelligence and customization to your specific environment period end of story you can't, you know the blinky box isn't going to go in there and figure all that out for you
1: i i agree and this is exactly why i need to go talk to my boss about a raise
0: <laughs> Touche.
1: no no it's it's you're right and i'm not i'm not trying to poke holes right i'm just i'm trying to not Understate the complexity and the nuance involved in this task. It's an important task, but it's a non-trivial task to do properly.
0: Well, I, I agree, but at the same time, I think there's an opportunity to grow slowly and incrementally. So, if you're, you know, if if I were approaching this situation, I, you know, I would I would take a look at my environment and say, okay, I, I, clearly, I don't want to look at if. Just focusing on the whole login failure thing for a second I, email is a terrible thing you know even active directory like com, you know computer logins we we know that people forget their password we know that people have you know batch jobs or whatever that that you know they'll change their password and it automatically retries a whole bunch of times and you know you get all sorts of of uh, false positives from that. But look around and see where those things are at, which would have very low false positive. You know, like the SSH server that only, you know, the, the IT, you know, three IT guys should be logging into. Well, you should probably never really see, you know, uh, somebody lock themselves out from that. And if they did, you could go make fun of them, right? Right. The, the uh, you know, actual incidence of that is going to be low enough that you can handle it. Exactly, and easily confirm it, right? And and you know, there's there's other things too. You know, again, I you know, I, I personally I like I really like the idea of looking at um, at opportunities to detect um, lateral movement. You know, and so we know again. You know, the, the, oh, there's so many resources out there on how this stuff on how contemporary attackers do this stuff you know they get on a system they try to map the network around them and they'll they'll start probing around look for that stuff a lot of this stuff is going to have a low false positive rate and that that's well, what we really need is like intelligence
1: about the threat in a feed <laughs> that we load <laughs> into our sim no yeah agree. yeah You know, we purposefully don't talk about a lot of vendors on this show. But, you know, recently I've bumped into a couple of vendors who their whole point in life is to do some of this stuff. So there's some out there. Uh, I don't know how well they work. I haven't run them in production. But there's a lot of thought going on around this. And I think it's definitely a valid technique. But I go back to the point I've been making on the last couple of shows when this comes comes up if your infosec is built around incident management, help desk response and engineering and operations and you don't have anybody who has actual cycles to think through this stuff and do these you know 80/20 sort of things, right? This is an a lot of work for for a, a big win, but it doesn't look good on paper to spend time building these sorts of intelligences and understanding around it. You really need to have somebody who's above that work cycle of ticket after ticket after ticket, after ticket being stuck in the incident response cycle to really be thinking through these big InfoSec problems and can do some of this thought leadership stuff in your organization. And if you don't have somebody who actually can get away from ticket after ticket after ticket and meeting after meeting after meeting and, meeting and can really devote time thinking about this, you're probably missing a lot of opportunities. Absolutely. But it's so rare for organizations to actually have guys who are not stuck in the cycle
0: of InfoSec response. Amen. Couldn't couldn't have said it better. So that is, uh, I think, the show for this evening. I think uh, we will end it there. And uh, it, as usual, if you have any feedback. If you like the show, have any ideas on topics or questions, send us an email to info at security.org. You can uh, find the website at www.defensivesecurity.org and there you'll find back episodes, our show notes, links to the the stories we talk about and all that kind of fun stuff You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec, you can follow Mister Kellett on Twitter at Lurg, and you can follow me on Twitter, at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will call it a week. Thanks, guys, as always, for listening. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Thank you.
1: And I uh, went to a Gladiator's game, which was fun. Had uh, had good seats. So that was a good time.
0: So you like Gladiator movies? <laughs> I do. And, and, I've been to a Turkish prison. Sweet. Never seen a grown man <laughs> naked.
1: I mean, and and because you don't shower, you are relatively sticky, so
0: I imagine... Not stinky. Sticky. Yeah, both. <laughs> okay, whatever. Last week I couldn't do it because I was hopped up on Vicodin.
1: That explains why random porn music got edited into our podcast.